Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In the debate about immigration, we are reminded of the original notion of America as a melting pot, as a nation that could absorb different cultures, different identities, and different ethnic groups. The trade-off was the embrace of an American identity, a kind of supranationalism that would subsume these subgroups and at its best would supersede ethnic and religious tribalism and replace it with the American brand. Over the years, we've seen fissures, usually when dramatic change or pressure comes to America. The onset of the Industrial Revolution, the Cold War against communism are a couple of examples. We've done better when we had a common external enemy. But today, the pressures may just be too great. Globalization and the decline of nation states, greater economic inequality, a 24-7 always connected culture, and the rush of change, both social and technological, at an unheard of pace, has all stoked fear, uncertainty, and insecurity. It's fed a new kind of tribalism, more common in the developing world, one that America has never really experienced before. To help us try and understand this, as well as the very ideas of tribalism, I'm joined by Amy Chua. Amy is the John Duff Jr. Professor of Law at Yale Law School. She's the author of the bestseller World on Fire, How Exporting Free Market Democracy Breeds Ethnic Hatred and Global Instability, as well as Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, and her most recent book, The Triple Package. It is my pleasure to welcome Amy Chua back to this program to talk about her newest book, Political Tribes, Group Instincts, and the Fate of Nations. Amy, welcome back to the program. Just so, thank you so much for having me again. Great to have you here. I want to start with this idea of the way America has avoided so many of the tribal conflicts that have plagued other nations, and particularly that plague developing nations. Talk about that first. Well, first of all, the bottom line is that America has been a country, um, to put it bluntly, that for almost 200 years was dominated economically, politically, and culturally by a white majority. Um, and this is a politically very stable, you know, even if often invidious state of affairs. I mean, when you have a big majority that controls the politics and the economy, all these other groups and tribal voices may be suppressed, but, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's stable. It's kind of like China with a 95% Han majority. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's happened in recent, and, and so, so, also, most of our immigrants for most of our history came from Europe, and they assimilated usually within one generation. So that's what we had before. As you know, in the last 30, 40 years, immigration has come at a, at a very high rate, and also many of the immigrants now are not coming from Europe, but they are primarily coming from Asia, where my own parents came from, Latin America, Africa, and other countries. So we're getting um, what people call the browning of America, and the prediction is that by about 2044, whites will no longer be a majority in America. And that's contributing to the current situation. We're in a point where, you know, when whites were the majority, they could do some terrible things, but they could also be generous at times because they weren't threatened. What, what we have now is every group in America feels threatened, not just minorities and blacks, but white feels threatened. There's a study that shows that 67% of working uh, class whites now feel more discriminated against than minorities. Um, it's not just Jews and Muslims who feel threatened. Christians feel threatened. 
With the Me Too movement, men feel threatened. Latinos, Asians, everyone feels threatened. And when people feel threatened, that's when they get more defensive and insular and become more tribal. So that's part of the picture. And how much of that sense of being threatened comes from not just the changing demographics, but the changes that are taking place socially, culturally, economically, technologically, that there is just so much change happening in society that it breeds the kind of fear and insecurity that that amplifies this kind of tribalism. Absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, what people refer to as the cultural wars. Um, What's really interesting is Inequality is a big piece of this, but it's not in, in in a way inequality has gotten part of the, it's gotten tribal too, with the left just hammering it home and the right talking in its own echo chambers. So people don't really understand what's going on. And what I explain is that because of this new cultural um, and geographical rigidity, whites in America are now split. Um, And it, it, It's always been a little bit, but it's in a new, intense form. So we have a situation now where the coastal elites, uh, many of whom are white, really view the whites in the middle of the country with such contempt and scorn. These are the, you know, racists and bigots. But it's vice versa. The people in the heart, in the middle of America, view these coastal elites as un-American, because the coastal elites are seen as minority-loving and pro-immigrants and pro-global poor, so they're viewed as like traitors and not real Americans. And and um, and this brings me to the, the 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 link to developing countries. In all these developing countries that I've studied and written about for 20 years, you often had this resented minority group that was viewed as an outsider that was indifferent and um, exploiting the real citizens of the country, like the, you know, the real Zimbabweans instead of this white minority or, you know, the Chinese in Indonesia with this hated minority and the Indonesians, we want our country back. And what we saw in the 2016 election is exactly this dynamic. We saw democracy bringing into power um, a president that said, look, we need to take back our country. There, you know, and, and it was implicit. The idea is that there are, um, you could see the rhetoric. It's like there's this tiny group, there's a small group of people wielding the power, these coastal elites. They control the Washington establishment, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, the media. And that really, really played. And even the rhetoric is like what you hear in developing countries. You know, let's take our country back embedded in make America great again, you know, like it used to be. So, so that's, I think, I don't know, I think a deeper way of understanding the, um, the, the, the culture wars that are often referred to. We have certainly always had class divides in America, even to the extent of, of it being majority white, majority European, as you were talking about before. What is it that, that is causing this class divide today to be more aggressive, to be more searing than previous class divides? It is the drastic decline in upward mobility mm-hmm. um, and geographical mobility. And this I also document. It's, it's terrible. I mean, it used to be um, that, you know, if you're from a working class family in the middle of the country, your odds were decent that you could, through hard work and education, you know, maybe move up and maybe often move to the coasts. At this point, as you know, <laughs> it is so expensive to live in California cities or New York cities or Boston cities. And 
the education gap is so entrenched now that it is so much more difficult for, for people just to move. And that is a drastic problem. I mean, that was always part of the American promise. And I've recently written that upward mo- restoring upward mobility should be viewed as an emergency. It's not just, oh, a left-right thing. It, it is an emergency. And what, what's happened is that education used to be the way out. Mm-hmm. It would be the great equalizer, you know, for all races, but for poor and, you know, non-poor whites. It's like if you study hard, you can rise. Right now with the way the system's gone, education, the route to wealth is now increasingly through intellectual capital and elite education. That is just absolutely not reachable for most lower income Americans. They can't afford these SAT prep scores and, you know, all the human capital of parents knowing exactly what tutors to get and let alone the tuition that is so expensive. So a lot of the traditional path to rising and moving around the country and integrating so that you know poor whites would be fluid with wealthier whites has really gotten cut off. And that's partly why we have these, almost I describe them in the book as two white tribes, America's two white tribes now. What has been the impact, as you see it, of globalization in all of this, the weakening of nation states, the free flow of both money and intellectual capital around the world? This is another link to this term I've used, uh, market-dominant minorities, which is a a term I coined in 2003, the first time I talked to you. Uh, Market-dominant minorities are a group of people in a country that tend to benefit disproportionately from globalization, um, whether because they're um, you know, they're well-educated or they have money or the capital. Um, and what's happening in America right now is globalization precisely tends to benefit um, the coastal elites. They, coastal elites tend to be more cosmopolitan. They speak different languages. They're, they have edu- even if they're not wealthy, they have education. Um, they're comfortable with, with, with different countries. And it's actually a lot of uh, kind of working class uh, Americans who are losing the jobs um, that are suffering from globalization, at least in the short run. So that's contributing. And you could see, you know, what President Trump did. He even though he himself is a billionaire and loves capitalism and did The Apprentice, he did this interesting thing where he um, he kind of is against well, at least rhetorically, it's a separate thing what he's actually done, but he's been sort of against, let's not let China take all the money from us, let's not let Mexico. He's actually been very good at, at um, attacking globalization, whether whatever words he uses, um, and even while being Mr. Capitalism himself. So that's what's so unique about America, is that it's often the progressive left that is um, criticizing capitalism and arguing against inequality, you know, rightfully so, and and, and being pro-socialism and pro-Bernie, whereas a lot of, ironically, a lot of working class and blue-collar Americans, they're watching, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians and Desperate right. Housewives and Duck Dynasty, and they want to go on Idol. They want the American dream. And I think that's, that's something that the American left has ceded, in a way, to the right. And, you know, that, that might have been a bad move, actually. I mean, as, as you talk about, it's a complete misreading of populism. Exactly. The, the, the populism in other countries has always been um, uh, socialist. I mean, like if you look in Latin American countries like Hugo Chavez, the popular movements were poor people. We're going to take away the money from the rich. But 
I, I have a, a new, you know, I explained this in the book. Um, we have what, what I call billionaire populism mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of working class Americans, they, you know, so a lot of people on the coast are like, how could these poor working class people vote for Donald Trump? He's a billionaire. Are they getting conned? What is going on? You know, or is it just all racism? But what they're missing is that he has, it, he's part of their cultural tribe. That is, he, the way he speaks and dresses and looks and the way he goes to the worldwide wrestling ring and watches NASCAR and eats big McDonald's things that they can actually relate to a lot of, you know, ordinary, you know, Americans in the middle of the country and everywhere. And every time he gets called out for being racist or sexist or, you know, not politically correct, all of us on the coast were, you know, we think, okay, now that's done it. Now he's going to be out. It's just the opposite. A lot of Americans themselves are often called out in the workplace. You know, oh, you didn't use the right politically correct term and you said this wrong. So they actually, it just makes them, they they just relate to him even more, you know, when he's standing up for them. So Trump has, has been a very effective populist leader by really portraying himself as part of their cultural tribe. And the thing about being in a tribe is once you connect to the tribe, you stay loyal. You know, you you don't care what the facts say and, you know, what this policy didn't work. It's like, okay, once you decide that he's part of your tribe, you stick with it. And and that's why people are stunned that the approval ratings are staying about the same, despite, you know, scandal after scandal, um, you know, seemingly fiasco after fiasco. What do we understand about that kind of tribal loyalty? Because it really goes beyond some of the specific issues we're talking about, and you talk about this in a, in a broader sense in political tribes, that there, there's a certain sense of, of tribalism and, in fact, the tribal loyalty that comes from it that is kind of hardwired into us in some respect. It is hardwired. Some of the most interesting studies in the book just show how we need to belong to tribes. Um, there's one fascinating study where they gave a bunch of children between the ages of four and eight. Um, they split them up into the red team and the blue team, a meaningless distinction. And they gave them red T-shirts and blue T-shirts. And then they put them in front of computer dockets and showed them pictures of, you know, girls and boys wearing red or blue T-shirts. It is amazing. The students consistently said they liked the children wearing their color T-shirt way more, even though they'd never met the child, didn't know anything about them. They consistently wanted to give them more resources, and they thought they were morally superior people. And not only that, they, they displayed unconscious bias. They were told stories about both the kids in the blue and the red. And later, when they were asked to report back about them, they consistently remembered more positive things about the people wearing their color T-shirt and remembered more negative things about the people wearing the other T-shirt. So that's an example of how just automatically, instinctively, children, even children, knowing nothing about people, will just want to glom onto their tribe. And when that translates into politics, it becomes very dangerous because let's say we want to talk about gun control, incredibly important issue. We can't really talk about it because people just have their tribal positions and anything the other side proposes is out of bounds. Um, And there are studies that show that if you show a group of people the same numbers and statistics about deaths and safety and, you know, stories, they will look at the exact same data and half of the people will conclude 
So that's why we need more guns. And the other half will conclude that's why we need fewer guns. And we really, it's not impossible to break out of this. You know, it's our, it's our default mode. It's, it's what we're hardwired to do. But going back to how you opened, in a way, the American project, the American idea was we also want to have this overarching identity. We, can, we try. We can also be connected as, as fellow Americans. Um, and, and, but it requires work and it requires will. And that's kind of why I wrote the book. I mean, you know, Jeff, most people, when they get a book now because of our tribalism, it's like, oh, is it a right-wing book or a left-wing book? And then you, you trash one or embrace it, depending on your side. And mine, I'm, get, I'm getting hate mail from both sides, once again, because <laughs> I, you know, I just will not pull any punches with respect to the right or left. I think both sides have, have made great mistakes and have contributed to where we, we are right now. Um, and But you see tribalism even in the response right. to a book about tribalism. Isn't one of the problems, and, and this goes to the sort of historical aspect of it that we ta- touched on in the beginning, that because we don't have this history of tribalism, because we have been more homogeneous, that now that we are in this tribal period— we don't really know how to deal with it, and we can't necessarily reach back into historical precedent, in this country at least, and understand how to move forward. Yeah, you know, I would describe it a little bit differently. I think we've always had these subgroup identities, but because we've had um, a very dominant white majority and very successful assimilation, people kind of kept assimilating into this white majority. I mean, at first, the Jews and the Irish, their books about how the Irish became white or how Jews became white, because when they first came over, they weren't quite accepted, but then within a couple generations, they were. Um, And, you know, Native American tribes were completely suppressed. And so there have always been these tribal identities. It's just that they were not allowed to be expressed. So part of what we're seeing is just um, a lot of formerly suppressed voices coming to the fore and, you know, finally being allowed to express themselves. And it feels very turbulent. But I think that you're right that we have been so lucky with a combination of democracy, upward mobility, and assimilation for most of our history – that we tend to be very naive about the way that democracy and these group and tribal instincts interact. That's why when we went to Iraq, we're like, oh, Sunnis, Shias, let's just put in some elections. You know, uh, we're constantly thinking that elections, that democracy will just smooth away uh, these differences. What in fact, what we've seen over and over in the developing world is that democracy under certain conditions especially when inequality overlaps with like race or ethnicity or something like that or sectarian differences, democracy often catalyzes group conflict. And that's exactly what we're seeing in America today. It's something that has happened in other countries a lot, but we never really saw it because our, our demographics and our upward mobility and assimilation were such that we, we were spared for most of our history. And as you say, we didn't understand it, and we've gotten it wrong in the Middle East in dealing with those conflicts. And you could even go back to Vietnam and see how we didn't get it right there either for exactly the same reasons. This is my favorite case study in the book, um, and I've, I, I keep waiting for somebody to, to disagree. But it's so in Vietnam, you know, um, some of your listeners may you know not remember it, but we everybody knows that we made a big mistake. We saw it through the lens of capitalism versus communism, this big Cold War thing. 
when in fact a lot of the conflict was really the Vietnamese people wanting their independence. It was about, you know, we want uh, to be free. But what experts still don't know, um, and it's really, I think, the first book in America, um, because there are French books that have talked about this, what people still don't know is that in Vietnam, there was also an ethnic dynamic uh, that we completely missed. American foreign policymakers completely missed it. And that is that the country's capitalists, the, the rich people there, were actually not part of the Vietnamese people. It, they were part of this um, market-dominant minority. That is, all the rich people were these outsider ethnic Chinese people. And they controlled all the wealth. So come, America comes in and says, we want to put in capitalism. And we didn't realize that what that sounded like to the Vietnamese people is, we want to help your enemy, these tiny little Chinese people that you hate in here. So because we missed the ethnic angle, we didn't understand why the Vietnamese kept flocking to the communist side. You know, they just wouldn't stand by us. And, and that's a, a, an example of what I mean by our, our ignorance or our blindness to the group identities that matter most to people on the ground. Uh, you know, part of it is just racism. They, they, people, they were like Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese, they're all the same. They're all gooks. So they didn't make this distinction that turned out to be incredibly important and really, I think, contributed enormously to our, our, our failure there. Given our historical blind spot to this and given where we are now and, and the speed at which things are moving, the speed at which information travels at 24-7, how do we even begin to think about putting Humpty Dumpty back together? I think that maybe, I mean, I tend to be an optimist here. The 2016 election is a wake-up call. Um, again, I'm, I, I'm not um, uh, I'm critical of both the right and the left. I think they've contributed to this mess. I think, I think on the left, um, there's been a lot of crying of wolf, you know, focusing on things that are maybe not that important. I mean, you know, if, if making inauthentic sushi is, is, is racism, then how, what word do we have to describe really terrible injustices <laughs> that we're seeing now? You know, so I think on the left, the, the, there's, there's been just... To this, they didn't, the left didn't realize that a lot of this identity mongering and victim worshiping would would not only infect college campuses, but actually help elect Donald Trump to the presidency. And on the right, I think people didn't realize that this rage mongering and peddling in conspiracy theories, that it wouldn't just stay in conservative media, but actually help Donald Trump get elected. So I think my view is that it's shaking things up. You know, both sides didn't realize that they've been playing with fire, which is why I integrated the foreign policy stuff into this book. If you look, if, you, if we look just beyond ourselves, we're just obsessed with only looking at ourselves and look at countries like I talk about, like Venezuela or Afghanistan or Vietnam. Our instinct is, oh, my gosh, we're nothing like those countries. Those are third world countries. <laughs> But if you look at these case studies, you see the parallel, these very resentful majorities, um, angry at a, at a smug establishment, um, sweeping in the demagogic leaders, and then you see lurches towards authoritarianism. You see a breakdown in the trust in our institutions and electoral outcomes, really dangerous stuff. Um, and I, so it's in a way, I hope that people will start opening their eyes and realize it's not that this tribalism isn't just, you know, because for a lot of people, being politically tribal is part of their identity. It's, it's almost fun to, to hate the other side. But I guess what I want to, what I'm hoping is people will realize that the, 
the, uh, the stakes are really, really high. Where do we look for the examples of, of the reverse? When we look at the developing world, we see where tribalism, in many cases, has given way to democracy or, or some form of democracy or some better outcome. Where do we find the cases where a, a democratic system has moved the other way, broken down and moved towards tribalism? You mean a successful case? A successful case, yeah. Well, this is this is terrible. I mean, I there are no successful examples of. I mean, once this tribal dynamic starts uh, rolling forward, it's very difficult to stop. And believe it or not, the United States is the most successful case. Um, we are very unique in this idea of being a supergroup. The fact that we have a very strong national identity, overarching, and yet, you know, at least historically, we've allowed. Um, subgroups to have their identities, whether it's, you know, I'm Polish American or I'm Jewish American or, you know, the Korean American. And the, if you look at a country like Libya, it's actually, it, it's, it's a failed state now, but it's actually similar to the United States in being a multi-ethnic nation. It has 140 different tribes. The problem there is that it didn't have an overarching identity that was strong enough to hold the country together, this, this Libyan identity that was just a colonial construction imposed on them, and it, the country fell apart. So we are, to answer your question, it's, it's like we need to look back to our own history, our, our own magic formula, and try to find some way to reclaim that. I mean, the thing about having a strong national identity, if you want everybody to buy into it, you can't just be rah rah right wing saying, "Oh, we wave the flag." You know, we're you. You have to make the country feel legitimate for other people. I mean, if people feel like my 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 people, my tribe is being shot discriminate, you know, indiscriminately, nobody cares. Why would they buy into the 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 big national identity? So, so I think again, both sides need to kind of realize that there's just a lot of tribal behavior, and people really aren't trying to understand or reach out to the other side. In a way, we have to reinvent ourselves. It's almost finding a restatement of the American proposition. We do at a certain level. I mean, I think that the basic um, core ideas are in our Constitution. You know, unique among our Constitution is ethnically neutral. It, it's not, it doesn't belong to Irish Americans only or German Americans. This is not to say, I mean, obviously we have repeatedly failed to live up to the ideals of our Constitution. But the, the document itself, the values that are embedded in there, which we keep failing to meet up to, they are there. So I think, I think you're right about reinventing that we need to kind of understand how that translates into a country that is just going to be demographically by skin color really different looking than the one that we had when the founders were first here. But, you know, hopefully if we can um, uh, kind of understand that those values have to be translated and reinterpreted, you know, we can get there. I mean, it's a very strong secret sauce. Uh, again, you only see this when you look at other countries, because if you just look at our mess, it, it just feels hopeless. But if you see what other countries are missing, that, you know, a, a country like Iraq couldn't, it was so hard to maintain that overarching Iraq identity because it was pretty new. It was only an invention years ago. Whereas the United States, you know, we, we have a constitution from our founding. So we have a lot of positive building blocks, too. I tend to be an optimist, Jeff. Amy Chua, her new book is Political Tribes, 
Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations, just out from Penguin Press. Amy, always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.